thank you, Brenda, from Bishop's Court. Uh, it would be a great help to me if you would keep your Bible open at page 797, and if you would also have the white bulletin uh, open in front of you, which gives you an outline of where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. And before we begin, I'm going to, to ask for God's help. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to be able to meet in freedom like this and to be able to study this magnificent letter uh, which you have used many times in history to revive your sleeping church. Uh, Lord, there are things here that are hard to understand and we need your help. So please give clarity to speaker and hearer alike and change us into the likeness of your Son, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, here's um, a question uh, for you to get us started. Uh, If forgiveness is for free, does it really matter how I live? Or, uh, to put the question another way, If God is in the business of forgiving, uh, without penalty and without cost, well then surely when I disobey God, is that really such a bad thing? Uh, Aren't I simply giving God another opportunity to do what he does best? Uh, One famous example from history of somebody who did believe that was a Russian monk by the name of Rasputin. Uh, Rasputin dominated the ruling family in Russia in the years before the Russian Revolution. And uh, he taught that salvation comes through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. And his argument was that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, Those who sin a lot will experience greater joy. And so he argued from that that it is the believer's duty to sin. And uh, Rasputin practiced what he preached. He lived a thoroughly promiscuous and wicked life. In fact, Rasputin's life was such an extraordinary contradiction between kind of Christian ideas on the one hand and gross immorality on the other that in 1978, um, a pop group by the name of Boney M uh, recorded a song about him and it went to the top of the charts. Do you remember Boney M, Raymond? Those younger ones of you who haven't heard of Boney M, Raymond will sing it for you afterwards. Now this morning, we're going to focus our thoughts on the phrase in the middle of verse 2, We died to sin. Now you see, although Rasputin was an extreme case, there are lots and lots of people today who claim to be Christians, but they're not living like Christians. Now I know that none of us live perfect Christian lives. I don't, you don't. But what is so very unsettling is that some professing Christians don't seem to care. Uh, For most of us, I think when we fail, we're sorry, we're upset, we're ashamed. Uh, We ask God to forgive us and we try to do better. 
But there are so many people, aren't there, who call themselves Christians, and indeed they might actually be Christians for all we know, but they seem very casual, don't they, about the the commandments of God and about obedience to God. They sit very lightly to those things. Their lives are actually very little different to everybody else. Now that is not a new problem. Uh, That's actually what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in Romans chapter 6. Not only were some people in the church in Rome careless about obedience, but they were defending their carelessness. Not only were they unashamed of it, they were actually proud of it. And even worse, they they were quoting Paul as support for their lifestyle. They were saying, Paul, we're only following your teaching. We're just doing what you've told us to do. Now that's because they misunderstood chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul taught that Christ died for the ungodly. Chapter 5, verse 6. And so some people were saying, well that means it doesn't actually matter if we're ungodly, because Christ died for the ungodly, we're okay. And Paul has just been teaching that God gives great grace to great sinners. Just look to the top of the page, page 797, left-hand column, chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so these people were saying, well, the more we sin, the more grace there's going to be. So it doesn't really matter if our lives are full of sin, because Paul, you've taught that our lives will then be full of grace. And so chapter 6, verse 1, this is the objection they raised. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If God gives grace to overcome sin... Well, doesn't it stand to reason that the more we sin, the more grace we will receive? And if we're not saved by righteous living, well, why on earth should we bother about it? And if they weren't actually living that way, at the very least they were saying to the Apostle Paul, this is the kind of thing that your teaching is going to produce in the church. And throughout history... That has always been a charge that's been levelled against the preaching of the gospel of grace. Because critics tell us that if people are saved by the free grace of God, they will live careless, disobedient lives. And Paul says that is absolutely horrific. And he rejects it out of hand. Verse 2. By no means. Get out of here, he's saying. No. But on what basis does Paul reject that teaching? Well, he does it by explaining the doctrine, the teaching of holiness. Um, Some people call it the doctrine of sanctification. I've given you a definition of that on the back of the pink sheet. And it's incredibly practical for all of us. I don't don't suppose any of us in this room have argued in the same way that the people at the church at Rome were arguing. 
But we are sensitive, aren't we, that this charge is sometimes brought against the Gospel. And when you look at some churches and some people who call themselves Christians and you see how they live and you see how worldly they are, well then you realise pretty quickly that there are real grounds for this objection. It is extremely relevant. And anyway, forget about other people. I mean, we're concerned about our own sins because we want to be more like the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul is going to deal with this question from two different standpoints. First, this morning in verses 1 to 14, he's going to deal with it from the standpoint of doctrine or truth. And then, God willing, next Sunday morning in verses 15 to 23, he's going to deal with it from the standpoint of experience. And he begins with this wonderful statement at the end of verse 2, which I have to tell you, I think is one of the most important statements in the letter to the Romans. This is actually the, the heart, the very essence of the biblical doctrine of holiness. Paul says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And we're going to think about that great truth under two headings this morning. Firstly, we're going to think about our new identity. We died to sin. Now, you know, that is a perfect description of a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has died to sin. That doesn't mean they're sinless, as we'll see in a moment. But they died to sin. That's what a Christian is. Now last year in Romans chapter 5, you may remember that we looked at the two giants. Um, Each giant wore a belt with millions of hooks on it. And we saw that a Christian is somebody who is born in Adam, he's hooked onto Adam's belt, but then at a certain point God unhooks him from Adam's belt and hooks him onto Christ's belt. Now that's not something that you and I can do for ourselves, it's something that God does. He he takes us out of Adam and he puts us into Christ. And I want to say to you that that is not a matter, first and foremost, of our experience, how we feel, or whether we sense a great change in ourselves, because you might not. It's a matter, rather, of our position, of our status, of our standing before Almighty God. It's about how God sees us and how God deals with us. Because when we became Christians, we became members of a completely different group of people. We now have a new representative, a new covenant head. And for that reason, God deals with us on a completely different basis. Before we were Christians, all of God's dealings with us were through Adam. But now that we're converted, all of God's dealings with us are through Jesus Christ. 
We are in Christ. We're living a new existence. We're actually in a new world and that means we have a radically new identity. And that is the basis of our sanctification. And I want to say to you this morning that justification, that is to say God's declaration that you are righteous in his sight, justification and sanctification are not two separate things. They're different. Justification is an act, it's a proclamation from Almighty God. Sanctification is a work, it's a process. But they are intricately joined together. You cannot separate salvation and holiness. They are part and parcel of the same thing. Now, people today tend to divide them. They say, okay, I've I've understood salvation, and now I'm going to start studying something totally new. I'm going to study what it means to be holy. So, chapter 5, justification, I'm studying that. Next week, uh, chapter 6, holiness, sanctification, something completely different. That is wrong. And it causes all kinds of problems when people do that. You see, God does not do a number of different things to us when we become Christians. God does one mighty thing. It's one mighty work. And it all belongs together and it all hangs together. And you can't interrupt it. You can't have one without the other. You can't be justified and not be sanctified. And if you're not sanctified, let me tell you, you have not been justified. Because God places us in Christ. And holiness is based on our new identity. So sanctification or holiness is saying to us, be who you are. You are in Christ. Live like it. That's your new identity. So think about it this way. You could say to uh, a 25-year-old man, be a man. Uh, Stop snivelling. Stop crying. Be a man. Now, of course, if you said that to a three-year-old, that would be cruel and it would be utterly ridiculous. Why can you say that to a 25-year-old? Well, because he is a man. And you're asking him to act and live in line with his identity. And that's how holiness comes to us in the New Testament. So what is then our new identity? Well, I have to say that the ESV translation of verse 2 is rather better than the NIV. Um, It says, we who died to sin. That's slightly better than the NIV, and there's not a huge difference. But there's a particular Greek word in the background there that means we whose special characteristic is that we died to sin. 
That is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. If you like, it is our birthmark. We are died to sin people. That's what Christians are. And Paul then explains what he means in verses 3 to 10 as he speaks about our union with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. Now, what on earth does that mean? You're getting complicated, Simon. Make it simple. Okay. The Lord Jesus lived in this world, on this planet, 2,000 years ago. And in this world, if you think about it, we saw this in Luke's Gospel, he was constantly surrounded by sin. He saw sinful things. He heard sinful things. He mixed with sinful people. And he was tempted by sin. Severely tempted, actually. And he suffered because of sin. But then he died. And he was buried. And that burial marked his final definitive break with this world of sin. He was finished with this world of sin. And that's what Paul means in verse 10. Put your nose, please, on verse 10. The death he died, that is Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. What does that mean? It means that he's never going to come back into this world in the same way. He will never be forced to live in the presence of sin again. He'll never be tempted by sin again. He'll never suffer for sin again. Because his relationship with sin was definitively broken when he died. And because you and I have been joined to Christ when we became Christians, and because we've, we've, as it were, been put into Christ, we too have died to this world of sin. Our connection with it spiritually has been broken finally and forever. We've been taken out of Adam and we can't go back. Let me put it to you this way. Not only did Jesus die for us, you know that, all Christians know that, but it is equally true that we died in him. He died on the cross and we, as Christians, died on the cross. We died to this world of sin. And Paul is, is so concerned we should understand it that he emphasises it an astonishing six times in the passage so that we can't possibly miss it. Follow them through with me. Verse 2. We died to sin. Verse 3. We were baptised into his death. Verse 4. We were buried with him. Verse 5, we've been united with him like this in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, we died with Christ.
Christ. Now you can't miss that, can you? Over and over again, we have died. Now think about this with me. If somebody dies, they can't possibly continue the old relationships they had with people before they died. That's why death causes such grief, isn't it? Because death is separation. We're not going to see them anymore on this earth. We're not going to hear their voices. We're not going to be able to talk to them again. They've died and they're separated from us as long as we are on this earth. Now friends, that is what has happened to us in Christ. And so we we cannot continue to have the old relationship with sin that we had before. Now you might be finding this a little bit difficult to hold on to, but I think it will become clear in a moment. Yes, it's true that we died on the cross with Jesus, but notice in the passage that is not the end of the story, because Jesus was raised. And he was raised into a wonderful new existence, a new world. He was raised to everlasting life. And because we are joined to Christ, we too have been raised to a new life. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. End of verse 5. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. In other words, we're going to live with him forever. And that is the magnitude of our salvation. We have died to the absolute control of the old world of sin. And we've entered a new world of life and purity, just as Jesus has done. Now, let's go back to the question we began with this morning. Somebody uh, says to you in church, well, you know, I don't see that there's anything wrong in sinning. Uh, I don't see that there's anything wrong in ignoring God's commandments. God's very gracious. He'll forgive me. Uh, I don't see any problem in living just like everybody else. After all, God is love and he's mercy. And the Apostle Paul says, what on earth are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? Shall we go on living in the old world, obeying its impulses, craving its pleasures, working for its rewards? You can't. You've been taken out of that. You've been delivered from that. You're not there anymore. That's not who you're... It's not who you are. Your, your, Your position, your identity has changed. So think for a moment of uh, a sailor in the Navy. I was hoping Mariana would be here this morning, but he's not. Think of a sailor in the Navy. And uh, he's spent his entire career serving on destroyers, warships. 
And uh, when he and his mates were off duty, they, they used to enjoy going up onto the deck and having a stroll in the sunshine and the fresh air. And then all of a sudden, he's transferred to submarines. And when he's off duty, the first time he goes up to his mates and he says, you know, we've got a couple of hours off. Do you fancy a stroll on deck? And they say, but hang on a minute. We're 500 metres underneath the surface of the ocean. Don't you realise what's happened to you? You're in a new world. You're in a totally new environment. It's simply not, not appropriate to talk about walking on deck. And that is Paul's first answer. To be a Christian is by definition to be somebody who's been removed from the old realm of sin. So how can you live in that world from which you've been permanently taken away? And the Apostle Paul would say to you, if you are seriously asking that question, are you a Christian? If you're just living in the world, have you ever been taken out of it? If you see no problem in living carelessly and disobediently, then perhaps the real problem is that you've never actually understood what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you another illustration. Um, a Christian businessman has to travel away from home. He's going to be away for four or five days in a foreign city, uh, staying in a foreign hotel. And uh, before he leaves, somebody in the office comes to him and says, you know, you're going to be away for a few days. What a great opportunity to have a bit of fun, to have a fling. Go and pick up a girl. Uh, your wife wouldn't know. She's not uh, having you followed by a private detective. She isn't having you filmed. She doesn't know where you are or what you're doing. You can do whatever you like and you'll get away with it. Now what would the Christian businessman say to that? Well, he would say you don't understand. You don't know what love is. You don't know what marriage is. You don't know what faithfulness is. You've no idea of the bond that I have with my wife. You don't actually know what you're talking about. It's unthinkable. It would never, never happen. Not because I couldn't do it. Not because I'd be afraid of getting caught. But because of who I am. And who she is. It's never going to happen. And to ask the question is simply to show your ignorance and your stupidity. Shall we go on sinning? It's a complete contradiction of our new identity. So can I say to you this morning that if you are playing with sin... If you are living in a careless and a disobedient way, you should seriously ask yourself, am I actually a Christian? 
Because if I'm doing this, I'm not acting like a Christian and it's not in line with my true identity. And that brings us secondly and much more briefly to the other thing I want us to see here, which is our new responsibility. And we're going to zoom in here on verses 11 to 14. You see, I know that this is all very well, but how do we live holy lives? How do we live free from sin? I mean, it's all very well to say we've been taken out of Adam and put into Christ, and we've got this marvellous new identity, but we're all tempted. We all have sin in our hearts. And we all struggle with these things. It's, It's a real battle for us. It's really, really hard to keep away from sin. It's not automatic. So how do we do it? And Paul gives three pieces of advice. First, he says, realise your true position. This is, this is massively important. It's so easy for us to dismiss this and never think about it. But did you notice in the passage how Paul keeps repeating the verb to know? Verse 3, don't you know? Verse 6, we know. Verse 9, we know. Because you see, the first thing in the battle for holiness is what do I know? What do I know to be true about myself? And Paul gives a magnificent answer to that question in verse 11. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, there's something very, very interesting about verse 11. It's actually, I think, fascinating because it is the first command in the letter to the Romans. You students make a note of this. It's the first time in Romans that we're actually told to do anything. So we've had five and a half chapters of teaching before God says, do this. Why? Well, it's because the first thing that we need to do is to learn and to hear and to believe and to know. And it's only when we've done that that we're ready to live for Christ, ready to do something. And we need to think of ourselves in this way. We need to repeat it. We need to understand it. We need to remember it. We need to act on the absolutely huge thing that Christ has done for us out of sheer grace. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Every morning when you wake up, every night when you go to bed, every time you're tempted, say to yourself firmly, This is who I am. I am dead to sin, but I am alive to God. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, puts it like this. He says that the major secret of holy living is in the mind. Our minds are so to grasp the significance of our death and resurrection with Christ that a return to the old life 
is unthinkable. Now, can I ask you, has your mind grasped that? Has your mind fastened on it? Has your mind locked onto it so that it dominates your thinking? I died to sin and I am alive to God. I'm a different person. The Puritan writer John Owen puts it quite brilliantly. He says this, quote, Unacquaintedness, that is not knowing, unacquaintedness with our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice and weak when we might be strong in the Lord. What he's saying is that we forget what a blessed people we really are. We forget how much God has done for us. We forget how much Christ has given to us. We forget that we've been totally changed. And this is the motivation for holiness. It is an awareness of what God has done for us in Christ. Some of you know um, Augustine. I'm not talking about the student over there. Um, I'm talking about the um, African church father. And uh, as a young man, he had lived uh, a very wicked life. He had been thoroughly immoral, had a series of mistresses. And one day after he was converted, um, he saw on the street a woman with whom he'd had an illicit sexual relationship. And uh, she came over to him all bold and provoking with a taunting smile and she sort of arranged herself in front of him and she said to him, (coughs) Augustine, it's me. And uh, he looked at her and said, yes, I know, but it's not me. Um, I'm not who I was. Good answer, isn't it, that? You don't know the man I am now. I'm a different person. Realise. Think about it. Reflect on it. Pray it in. This is who I am. I am dead to sin. What on earth am I doing playing around with it? Count yourselves dead to sin. And the second piece of advice that Paul gives is refuse. Realise? Refuse to serve the old master. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. I think we could call this the the negative of holiness. Just say no. Just say no. Most of you are too young to remember Nancy Reagan. She was the wife of one of the presidents of the United States in the 1980s and she pioneered a campaign to help children get away from drugs and that the slogan of that campaign was just say no. Every time you see sin say no. Always. No, I will not obey you. I won't listen to you. You see, Satan cannot force us to sin. 
He likes to trick us. He likes to deceive us. He likes to make us think that we have to obey him and that we're bound to obey him, but we don't. It's not true. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a brilliant illustration of this. He describes the situation of a slave in one of the southern states of North America in the 19th century. And this guy escaped up north into one of the states where there was no slavery. And so as he crossed the border into that state, he was legally and really and truthfully a free man. He had no master. Nobody owned him anymore. But then one day he saw his former master on the other side of the street, the man who had owned him, the man who had beaten him, the man who had had to obey for all those years. And as soon as he saw his former slave, the master summoned him to come across the street. And the the former slave, he began to cross the road. He was saying to himself, the master's called, I've got to obey. And then he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's not my master anymore. I don't have to obey him. I don't belong to him. I don't actually have to listen to him. I don't have to do anything he says. I'm free. And you see, that is what Paul is saying that you and I have to do with sin. Don't listen. Just keep saying no. The Bible talks about mortifying sin, which is a way of saying putting sin to death, denying it. And uh, John Owen has another marvellous quote on this. I think I've put it in the outline for you. He says, quote, A due sense of deliverance from the dominion of sin is the most effectual motive for holiness. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't have to sin. I don't have to give in to this. It's not who I am. So, realise... Refuse, and then the third piece of advice, rededicate. So this is the positive. We've seen the negative, the positive route to holiness. Because holiness is more than simply saying no. Verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. And here's the positive. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Don't offer yourselves to sin, offer yourselves to God. You see, Paul is saying the negative on its own isn't enough. You know, when you're tempted by evil thoughts, and we all are, think good thoughts. When you're tempted to read a book or watch something on the television or look at pictures that you ought not to be looking at, don't just say no. Go and get a good book. Uh, Read your Bible. Read a Christian book. Watch something edifying and helpful. If you're tempted to sin when you are on your own, don't be on your own. Stay in Christian company. 
If you find yourself with people who pull you down spiritually, don't spend time with people who pull yourself pull you down spiritually. Spend time with people who pull you up. Isaac Watts said, Satan finds some mischief for idle hands to do. But you see, if we keep busy, busy with the things of God, busy with the truth of God, busy with the service of God, we won't have time to sin. And actually, in the end, we won't want to. This is really, really important. Because what Paul is saying is that it's good to say no, but it's a mistake to think that that's enough. It's no good sitting there saying, I'm not going to sin. No, 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 I'm not going to. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the devil is more patient than you are. And he will wear you down. But if you say, no, I'm not going to sin, and in fact, instead, I'm going to go and do this good and edifying thing, read this book and spend time with a Christian friend, have a cup of coffee with them, pray, whatever it is, well, you've replaced the negative, haven't you, with the positive. And Paul says that we are to give our minds, our hands, our tongues, our eyes and our hearts and our bodies to Jesus Christ. We are to spend our hours and our days doing everything we possibly can to please him. And you see, if we do that, we're no longer easy prey for the enemy. And the passage ends, doesn't it, with a marvellous promise. You see, we can be holy. Actually, we will be holy. Why do I say that? Verse 14. This is a promise. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. Now that emphatically does not mean that we don't have to keep God's commandments. But he's saying, think about it, what is the dominating force, the ultimate factor in your life? It is that you are not in Adam and you are not trying to please God by keeping the law. Because, think of this, when God looks at you, he is not looking to see whether you've obeyed. God looks at you and he sees that Jesus Christ has obeyed. And that means, you see, that our relationship with God is not governed by you must. It's actually governed by he has. Isn't that liberating? Martin Lloyd-Jones very rarely speaks about himself in any of his sermons. But uh, in his sermon on this text, he makes a very interesting, revealing personal statement. He says, this chapter, Romans chapter 6, this chapter, since I came to understand it, has been the most liberating in my whole Christian experience. 
And my prayer this morning is that that will be true for us as well. For sin shall not be your master, promise, because you are not under law. You are under grace. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, please forgive us for forgetting who we are, for living in ways sometimes that are totally inconsistent with our true identity. We know, Lord, that when we do obey you, we're happy inside. We feel a sense of rightness. When we disobey you, we're miserable. We know how out of character it is. We hate the sin in us. And our best times are our holiest times because you've made us new people in Christ. Help us to realise this. Help us never to forget it. But moment by moment to remind ourselves of what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to refuse to serve sin and help us day by day to rededicate ourselves to our Master and our Saviour Jesus. We thank you for his grace to us and it is through that grace that we pray.